0: Welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today is Friday, December 7th, our first show of December this year. December 2018. Thanks so much for listening in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in the Mission District in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land. Deep breath. Thanks so much for listening in. I'll provide a trigger warning, as we do before most of the shows, so that we'll be talking about current events, some past events, What's happening in the world it's uh, scary frightening uh, difficult I often run out of words that I feel can accurately describe what we're going through and that's been the case since we've started doing the show back in 2013 simply to witness what's happening is feels like too much sometimes and at the same time it's necessary that it that we do that we talk about what's happening and provide a another perspective that's not covered in, in, by corporate media and by the powers that be who want to continue on with their really harmful narrative that continues to defend state violence, and want to be one of the many, many voices out there that provides the opposite of that. Started off the show with some music, as we always do. I uh, lost uh, Pete Shelley recently. Uh, Pete Shelley was the lead singer of the Buzzcocks. He was openly queer in that song, Homo Sapien, I believe was banned for a while from bbc because it alluded to gay sex and that's only been around for since the beginning of time but however some folks were not happy about it so really wanted to play that song uh and perhaps we'll get to some more and not perhaps most likely we will get to some more buzzcock songs uh throughout the rest of the program also wanted to play uh we lost someone who a lot of us are not sad about losing, and that's uh, one of our many war criminal presidents, ex-presidents, uh, that was George H.W. Bush, uh, passed away, died at 94 a few days ago. Maybe it was last Friday. And my first, I was with some friends, and when I first heard the news, they say in improv you should, you know, your your first instinct is the the right one. I don't necessarily always believe with that, but in this case... I raised my glass. I was drinking some water and I raised my glass cuz it's one less war criminal in the world. And the fact that he gets to live, that he got to live a really long life and getting away with everything he did, all the harm he caused to people here and abroad. It's disgusting. And on top of that, the fact that so many folks are mourning him and talking about what nice what a nice person he was or these fucking ridiculous platitudes. All the while he has caused, literally caused the deaths of so many people around the world. Disgusting. So then I thought about uh, Neil Young's song, Rockin' in the Free World, and one of the lines, kinder, gentler, machine gun hands. And that's all I can think about. <laughs> that idea of people in positions of power wanting to talk about how nice they are, all the while <sighs> causing the deaths of so many people. So, I listened to a really good podcast uh, recently, in The Intercept, they, more or less independent news site, and they also have a podcast, and they had a history of H.W., and I'm going to be playing portions of that today on the show, because I feel like it provides a really good history of his actions. I was a kid when he was president, and still, of course, there's still the impact, and I had pretty good school attendance when I was younger. I didn't get sick very often. And I do remember one day in 1991, it was January 17th, 1991. I remember I wasn't feeling good that day and I I said I needed to stay home from school that day. And it was that night I remember that they announced uh, the beginning of the Gulf War. So even even as a kid without really understanding all that was about to happen, there was still the sense that something was bad. Bad was in the air. And this is, of course, (laughs) after surviving the 80s, which was horrible for many people due to the people in positions of power. And the the podcast I'll be playing will get into that. It'll provide a really good analysis of what happened. And a lot of it was not talked about either in schools or in the media. And certain folks have. And it's really crucial to continue to recognize what happened. Because for folks who are suddenly like, oh, how did we get to where we are today? How did this happen? As if somehow we haven't been led by really cruel people for a very long time. (sighs) (sighs) Deep breath. I meditated this morning. Can't you tell? So we we'll be playing that. Also, getting to a few more news stories. Also, a reminder. I don't know if I'll read a story about it, but a reminder to do not donate to the Salvation Army if you're still someone who does. They're extremely homophobic and transphobic. They're fucking gross. Uh, you can Google it for yourself. Perhaps, perhaps I will. I'll do that for you, and I'll find an article. If not, please, by all means, there's a lot of information. And recently, they're telling, you know, folks, they're telling their employees not to speak out about their. Anti-gay policies, although I've met people who have worked for them in the past, they're extremely anti-gay. There are a number of great organizations that you can donate to, TGIJP, St. James Infirmary, Trans Lifeline, I can go on and on. There's a lot of really good orgs out there that are actually helping people, APTP, a lot of great orgs. So please uh, uh, do that. I was thinking of a lot more organizations off top of my head and there's more that we can get to. So, and I also really despise Christmas time. If you don't know me or if you don't know that about me, now you do the idea that it's so forced that's based in consumerism, that it's like, oh, this time of year we'll be generous. How about the rest of the year? How about that? Uh, the idea that people are chopping down trees, I think that's really a, lot of bu- that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I don't like that. For folks who don't celebrate Christmas, it's like a really awkward situation for about a month. Also, the fact that you can't go anywhere without listening to Christmas songs anywhere you go is really obnoxious. So I'm not necessarily a fan of it and thought I would bring that up. I mean, I'll be here throughout December uh, might miss one show. However, I uh, wanting to put that out there because I know I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of folks who are also like, oh, this time of year again, it's just a lot of, it just feels really fake. And I don't, I don't really like that. All right. So wanting to share that with y'all. Y'all. Why did I say y'all? Oh, okay. This is super important. Also an update from the Migrant Caravan. A few weeks ago, we spoke with uh, Jesse Sandoval, who is down in, in Mexico and was speaking about the situation there and providing some information and really wanting to amplify the voices of the folks who are on the ground and who are doing the work. So I wanted to read a post that Jesse wrote yesterday morning uh, just to share some information with folks, uh, just, just to get the word out. So Jesse writes in this... And also, also ah, talking i'm gonna slow down a second that coffee's getting to me you can follow jesse sandoval on facebook as well as on twitter uh hashtag migrant caravan hashtag asylum seekers hashtag exodo centro americano hashtag tijuana hashtag soy nika hashtag people of the sun hashtag volcano people this might be my last public announcement but for a while oh for a while but please take note and meditate and inbox me with feedback i will not engage here We have thousands of aid volunteers flooding into Tijuana right now, millions of dollars floating about, being vacuumed in by NGOs and American nonprofits, an obscene amount of capital and social currency circulating above the reach of the people of the caravan, our Central American exodus community. All the while, virtually no political organizing here in Tijuana, with the exception of the righteous work of the people participating in the hunger strike currently underway. By the way, how many news articles have you read about that? and the atrocious external San Diego-based organizing that led women and children into the crosshairs of the U.S. Border Patrol two Sundays ago. But no one here has reached out directly to the impacted communities on the ground in the encampments to listen to their complaints regarding their treatment by the Mexican Human Rights Commission, CNDH, a state organization that seems all too heavily invested in facilitating so-called voluntary deportations, while completely disregarding the social justice conditions, repression, and human and civil rights violations happening inside the encampments right now. Folks like Enclave Caracol are doing really wonderful work, but they're spread thin and their work is about food, nourishing vulnerable bodies with good food and connecting people with resources, aid, and serving as a coalescing community hub, logistics orientation, if you will, which is super valuable, especially in this chaos. But many out of town folks are very confused about what the aid and migrant support roles are here with the different organizations. The shelters are shelters and they have their limits. Many are also faith-based with that scope and capacity, aid is mostly material and short-term. Legal, oh lord, we have hundreds of lawyers right now and more flooding in, but damn, are they hard to find too. And many are not even aware of each other. Also, please note, the lawyers are not activists. They're here to provide legal clinics and counsel regarding asylum and legal procedures. But please keep in mind that most, most of the people in the migrant caravan are very likely not to, not Uh, not qualify for asylum. That's not to say that their lives aren't in extreme danger back in their home countries, but the asylum laws in the U S are built for severe exclusion, not exceptions and are politically motivated. And that dear solidarity fam brings me back full circle to my original point. In this FB thesis, we need political organizing in Tijuana because as a Honduran journalist, compañero has been saying over and over to, to almost deaf ears, La salida va ser politica no juridica. Yes, that's right. The way out will be political, not judicial. The wildest gate of relief for our Central American Exodus family, and the one we must help to create, can only be widened by social justice political organizing, and it must be done with their collaboration and input, not only on their behalf, that's not only offensive, but also colonizing and demoralizing. So if you're here in TJ and want to support social justice for asylum seekers to help uplift their voices and autonomy as a political migrant identity, please begin to plug into affinity groups and orgs with that framework and practiced centered in their mission statement and backed up by their actions. If you don't know of such groups, then let's begin one now. Yes, now. If you're back in the USA, please do the same with your solidarity, support, actions, and organizing. Thank you. So, again, uh, you can read this post. This was written by Jesse Sandoval, and we've shared this on the Weekly Review webpage, which is at facebook.com forward slash weeklyrev. Please follow Jesse. Also, there's uh, fundraising. You can uh, support folks who are doing the work there as well. Okay. Moving along to Facebook, and this is ugh. Ugh. I'm gonna take a deep breath because th- sometimes the segues don't work quite as we want them to. I do some pre-planning before the show, th- th- some, not all, and it never quite sure the how one story is going to flow into the next. Um, I am going to play an audio clip right now, actually, which I feel is it's much needed. And uh, a friend of mine, Lauren, posted this, and I really wanted to share this with folks. It gives me faith. I have a lot of faith in the next generation. And so uh, you can find this on YouTube. Uh, In the event that I do not change the world, and it's uh, written and performed by Azora Tayabji.
1: From space, I saw Earth, indescribably beautiful, with the scars of national boundaries gone. Muhammad Ahmad Faris, Syrian astronaut, 1991. The overview effect describes the sobering and inspiring cognitive shift some astronauts experience while looking down at Earth from orbit. In elementary school, teachers encouraged us to be astronauts. I'll probably never make an appearance in their diversified STEM dreams, but I still imagine floating in the steel hull of a spaceship, peering down at earth from behind a reinforced window, peering down at the small revolving body of tension swaddled in thin atmosphere, swinging on the vast silent playground of space. I cannot see the scars exploding on its skin from here but the growing pains echo still. In the event that I do not change the world but help raise it instead. I hold its hand as it skips over fault lines cracked in the sidewalk. I help it chop an onion the way my aunties taught me. To hold a puddle of water on my tongue without breaking fast. I listen to the world's grief and musings on the porch swing the bus ride back home, the pockets of time after class. I listen to every one of its questions and transcribe a holy book of its answers. I invite it on stage to play when it has been captive audience its entire life. I dull its sharp instruments when I say goodnight. I know one day, inevitably, I will get tired with how the world keeps hurting itself over and over and over again, that I will turn my back on it. Then I'll find an apology sliding its way under my door. So we orbit each other in restorative circle. And from that gravity, accountability forms in our hands. We learn how to hold this star together. We bury the guns in the dry dirt. I'll probably never make it to space, but I do not need a dramatic launch to see the world swinging a heavy pendulum from where I am now. I am not begging to be known, to be decorated, statued authority. When I knock over false heroes' trust, it's because the world needs room to build better ones. I raise that justice is not a gentle word. Equity and love are not toothless either. Spinning in a carousel of dead ends, Whoever can afford to sleep at a crossroads has never been chased from a border. Trust, these are not times to tiptoe around the world like it is sleeping undisturbed in a white cradle, like it's not daring to push its orbit every day. I may not change the world, but I can stand up without fearing someone else will take my seat. I can love and challenge the world boundlessly. I can sit at my own window, and overview every crevice. I can whisper into the terrestrial noise. Still there's change within my grasp.
0: Alright, so that was In the Event That I Do Not Change the World by Azora Tayabji. And the last name is spelled T Y A B J I. Please do uh find uh lots of Azora's poems on uh, you can find it on YouTube as well as other places as well. I was gonna play a buzzcock song after that and it just the nope just the didn't quite line up as uh the mood was was letting the mood didn't quite feel right so i'm gonna go into another story here there's a lot oh, there's so much going on in the world uh, never quite get to everything however we'll read what we can and also as mentioned before we'll be playing uh part of a podcast from the intercept about the history of hwf war criminal president one of the many war criminal presidents that we've had also, folks were rioting in in France, and uh, direct action got the goods because uh, they decided to lower the the tax, the gas tax that they had was one of the reasons that they had been rioting. So there was a lot of news footage about that. Also, I've heard in Haiti as well, folks have been protesting. There's lots of protests happening around the world, and it's just a matter of do we have access to that? How do we find out about it? And of course, we don't hear about a lot of it on <sighs> through mainstream media and even with the internet censoring which i'll go into a little bit later uh, tumblr has decided to remove all adult content and facebook is also following similar measures which can mean people aren't allowed to talk about their sexual orientation for instance or there might not be any any nudity at all even if folks are consenting to like their own nudity of their bodies Um, however they're still allowing white supremacists on their platform so it's really fucked up I do want to get into a happy story though. We do have some happy stories, and this comes from the San Diego Union-Tribune. Marriott strike yields forty percent pay hike for Westin housekeepers. And as we know, folks from Marriott uh, workers have been on strike for a while now. Folks are striking here in San Francisco, uh, around the country, and possibly around the, I think around the world too. Is that true? I'll find out. And this story came out very recently, written by Lori Weisberg. And came out on December fourth. A more than month long strike by Weston San Diego gas lamp workers will deliver a forty percent pay hike for hotel housekeepers, stronger protections for sexual harassment, and a first time pension. Details of the new four year contract were made public Tuesday following the end this week of the last of the hotel walkouts that had targeted Oh yeah, Marriott International properties involving 7,700 workers across eight cities in the U.S. The Unite Here labor union representing the workers had agreed to not divulge terms of the individual contracts until all strikes were settled. The last of those was in San Francisco, where 2,500 workers had been on strike for more than 60 days. They are returning to work on Wednesday now that they have approved a new contract. The San Diego strike, which marked the first hotel walkout in the county since 2000, when workers at the Hotel del Coronado struck for one day ended in early November. The financial terms of the agreements negotiated in each of the affected cities varies based on their respective economic demographics. In San Diego, hotel housekeepers who tend to be among the lowest paid workers and represent the largest of more than two dozen different union job classifications at the Westin had been earning $14.25 an hour, significantly below their peers at other San Diego union hotels. The Weston's 162 workers represented by Unite Here had been without a new contract since April of last year. With the new agreement, their pay will jump to great $18 an hour next July and will increase a few times before and will increase a few times more until 2022 when hourly wages will reach $20, said Rick Bates, research analyst for Unite Here Local 30. By comparison, Housekeepers at the Hotel Del Coronado, also a union property, currently earn $18 an hour, and at the San Diego Hilton Bayfront, the hourly pay is $17.35. In San Francisco, where the cost of living is considerably higher than San Diego's, the median hourly wage for hotel housekeepers is currently $23, which will increase by $4 an hour by the end of the four-year contracts for the affected hotels, according to Unite Here. In addition to housekeepers, the new San Diego contract will mean significant pay raises for all categories of workers, from front office employees to banquet cooks, Bates said. Tipped banquet servers and bartenders, for example, will receive an increase in their gratuity from 13.5% to 15.5%. Throughout the strike, the workers' mantra had been, one job should be enough. A reflection, union organizers said, of the need of many employees to work more than one job to make ends meet. I think we were looking for wages that would allow the workers to provide for their families in San Diego, and we weren't going to stop fighting until we got there, and $20 was the target, Bates said. You're not going to be rich by any means, but you're not going to be in poverty. This is just the starting point. A spokeswoman for Marriott International, now the world's largest hotel chain, had no comment Tuesday on the substance of the new contracts, saying only that we look forward to welcoming our San Francisco associates back to work. With its acquisition nearly two years ago of Starwood Hotels and Resorts, Marriott's portfolio has grown to 1.26 million rooms in more than 6,500 properties in 127 countries and territories. And during the last fiscal year, it recorded profits of $1.3 billion on revenue of nearly $23 billion dollars. In addition to the pay raises coming to the Western Gas Lamp Workers, other economic benefits negotiated on their behalf include no increases in health insurance premiums during the four-year contract period. Monthly premiums for the union's Kaiser Health Plan, for example, will remain at $50 a month no matter the size of the household. Workers who prefer to receive their medical care in Mexico will now have access to a SIMNSA plan. Uh, Sistemas Medicos Nacionales SA de CV because it is a lower cost plan union members will no will pay no premium a uh, first time pension that will will rec- will require the employer to contribute 40 cents an hour for each hour worked by the employees that will rise to 60 cents an hour by the end of the contract Weston hotel workers already have a 401k that includes an, an employer contribution but now they will have the choice of a guaranteed pension, Bates explained. If they choose the pension, they can still keep contributing to their 401k, but will no longer get an employer contribution. Across all the hotels, Unite here won arguments from Marriott to equip employees who work directly with guests, like housekeepers and room service attendants, with GSP-enabled panic buttons that will let them call for immediate help if they feel unsafe. In addition, there is a provision that requires guests to be removed mid-visit and banned from the hotel for three years if they're believed to have been sexually harassing an employee, Bates said. Marriott has been working on the panic button technology for some time and plans to roll out the initiative to all its more than 5,000 managed and franchised properties in the U.S. and Canada, said spokesman Brandon, uh, Brendan McManus. The associate alert technology rollout is projected to continue through 2020 and as we and our franchise partners fine-tune and tailor installations at individual sites, ranging from high-rise city properties to sprawling resorts to suburban hotels, he said, responding to union concerns about increasing automation that could potentially could, could, potential, could potentially could potentially potentially, excuse me, <laughs> uh, hmm. jeopardize hotel jobs. Marriott also agreed to not make such decisions without first engaging in talks with the union, Unite here said. And again, you can find this article at the San Diego union tribune and it came out on December 4th (sighs) and it was written by Lori Weisberg. So sending lots of love and solidarity to the workers out there, everyone who was on strike and grateful when there's an outcome like this. Okay, we're going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back with uh, some more. So please do stay tuned. of Buzzcocks with <sighs> Ever Fallen in Love. Coming up next, I'll be playing the podcast I mentioned earlier from The Intercept. This goes into the history, part of the history of George H.W. Bush. And you can find the full podcast here if you go to theintercept.com. Lots of other useful information there. And this is from uh, Deconstructed with uh, Mehdi Hassan. And we'll be I'll be checking in towards the end of this, so please stay tuned.
2: Hello, Mehdi Hassan here. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to invite you to become a member of Deconstructed and The Intercept.
0: And uh, I'll just continue talking, and I'll give a plug for this radio station, MutinyRadio.fm. And if you'd like to contribute to the station, please do so. We have uh, slots here available if you'd like to do a show of your own. You pay monthly dues. uh, You get two hours a week to do any kind of programming you like. There are great shows here. If you check out mutinyradio.fm, you can find the full schedule of shows. There's music, there's politics, there's comedy, there's news, a lot of different options. So please do check us out. If you, like, if you would like to support this particular show, uh, that'd be super helpful. We have a Patreon set up, patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. The first hundred bucks raised a month goes directly to paying dues for the show. And simply by... Spreading the word, listening in, engaging in conversation. I really just do the show just to provide another voice uh, as a counterbalance to a lot of the falsehoods that are out there. A lot of the negative voices that are out there. So, if you appreciate this, please do help spread the word. If you're able to donate even a dollar a month, that's super helpful. I appreciate it. And just continue on having conversations with folks. Okay, that's that's my plug. <laughs> All right, well, we'll continue on with uh, Deconstructed.
2: Isn't afraid to challenge orthodoxies. We don't worship at the altar of access journalism. We cover stories at other media outlets.
0: And it's continuing on. I paused it to make sure I was able to <sighs> speak enough. So, yeah, again, mutinyradio.fm.
2: And
0: also... A note: uh, Women's magazine and Common Thread Collective will be back next week.
2: And, sign up for a $5
0: and they're still doing their plugs. I mean, also support the Intercept. Lots of great news there as well.
2: Is not only about money, it's about-
0: okay. <sighs> Gonna take a, a moment here. And again, thanks so much for listening in.
2: in to the kind of independent-
0: okay. And this is what happens when sometimes we have long weeks and don't quite plan in advance. However, it's a very DIY show, and I wouldn't have it any other way.
3: Political hagiography, exploiting this death to make political points, while at the same time demanding that nobody else make countervailing political points. And that's what I find so bothersome about it, is it's a demand to engage in one-sided propaganda. <laughs>
2: Welcome to Deconstructed, I'm Mehdi Hassan. George H.W. Bush passed away last Friday at the age of 94. He was the 41st President of the United States, and tributes have poured in from people across the political spectrum who have dubbed him the anti-Trump, the last Republican moderate, a paragon of civility, of decency, of honour
4: history
5: will be quite kind to him in his presidency. He was a good reminder that ultimately we're Americans first. He has a universal respect of the American people.
2: Job well done, George H.W. Bush. On the show today is my good friend and Intercept colleague, Glenn Greenwald, who, like me, is pretty fed up with some of the appallingly one-sided U.S. media coverage of Bush's death and the whitewashing of some of the darker aspects of his presidency
3: what really is being demanded is that we all submit to historical revisionism and the fact that journalists of all people are leading the way in making that demand is deeply corrupt and offensive and i just think that it's incumbent upon all of us to
2: refuse to allow them to do that so today on this special episode of deconstructed george hw bush the inconvenient truth When a president dies, something weird happens to the U.S. media. And as a Brit watching cable news, I kind of feel like tearing my hair out.
5: Herbert Walker Bush was the last of the greatest generation to serve as president. And he embodied the best of that generation. Decency, honor integrity.
4: He was a great man. I really got to know him as a friend.
5: He had a great sense of humor, fun to be around. He had Christ-like
2: character. He was humble. He was faithful. Christ-like character. Hmm. Look, the late George H.W. Bush or Bush Senior, as many of us refer to him, did a lot of good things as president of the United States. He did. He helped end the Cold War without firing a shot. He stood up to the gun lobby. He stood up to the pro-Israel lobby. He brought in the Americans with Disabilities Act. He called Donald Trump a blowhard and even voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Unlike the current president who dodged serving in Vietnam because of bone spurs, Bush Sr. joined the Navy at the age of 18 so he could fight for his country in World War II. And fun fact, as my sixth grader told me last night, Bush hated broccoli and banned it from Air Force One. I guess he and I have at least one thing in common. But here's the thing. George Bush Sr. also did a lot of awful things, killed a lot of innocent people. And we can't just ignore that or pretend none of that happened. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and some of you have said this to me on social media since I wrote a piece last Saturday for The Intercept pointing out how the 41st president engaged in race-baiting, obstruction of justice, and war crimes. This isn't the time, you said. Don't speak ill of the dead. Show some compassion. Show some respect for his family. Look, I have nothing but respect and compassion for his grieving family members, even his war criminal son. To lose your father is horrible. But Bush wasn't just a family man, wasn't just a private citizen. He was a public figure. He was, for a time, the most powerful man on earth. And it is the job of journalists to hold powerful people, to hold power to account, not to produce hagiography masquerading as journalism. You can't ask journalists who are supposed to be producing the first draft of history, remember, to just pour praise on the positive legacy of a dead president and ignore the negative aspects of it. Well... Of course, many journalists do exactly that, which is what we're going to be discussing today. But I, for one, cannot sit silently by as brazen lies are told on cable news or in newspaper op-eds and obituaries. Listen to Colin Powell, who served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Bush Sr., speaking on CNN on Saturday.
6: A quote that he gave that you used a few moments ago, politics need not
5: be mean and nasty. And he lived by that. And I wish we could get some, some of that back into our system now.
2: George Bush Sr. said we shouldn't be nasty. I have two words for you. Willie Horton. The notorious Willie Horton ad, financed by supporters of President George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign,
0: which played directly into white fear and African-American stereotypes.
2: Willie Horton was serving a life sentence for murder in Massachusetts, where Bush's 1988 Democratic presidential opponent, Michael Dukakis, remember him, was governor. And Horton had fled a weekend furlough program brought in by Dukakis and raped a Maryland woman. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. That ad, released by a political action committee tied to Bush during the 1988 campaign, wanted us all to know that the Democrats were okay with a black guy raping white women. It was racism, pure and simple. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. As Bush campaign director Lee Atwater bragged, by the time we're finished, they're going to wonder whether Willie Horton is Dukakis' running mate. Atwater later apologized for the ad on his deathbed. George Bush Sr., though, never did. And yet never Trump Republican Max Boot in the Washington Post called Bush Sr., the anti-Trump. CNN's Chris Silliza said the elder Bush was, quote, the exact political opposite of Donald Trump. Look, I get it. Compared to the openly corrupt, know-nothing, neo-fascist demagogue in the White House right now, Bush Sr. looks pretty good. But that's a very low bar. And by the way, guess what? When it comes to special counsels and cover-ups and presidential pardons, Bush had a lot more in common with Trump than some in the media might have you believe. Prosecutor Lawrence Walsh says the presidential pardons of six former Reagan administration officials, including Casper Weinberger, won't end the Iran-Contra investigation. Walsh says Mr. Bush's own misconduct still is an issue. Sorry, you cannot get all worked up about Trump dangling a pardon in front of former campaign chair Paul Manafort or refusing to sit down for an interview with special counsel Robert Mueller and then give Bush senior a pass on Iran-Contra. Bush refused to speak with the special counsel at the time, refused to hand over his diary, and pardoned Reagan Defence Secretary Caspar Weinberger on the eve of his trial, so that he, Bush, wouldn't have to testify. He participated, in the words of special counsel Lawrence Walsh, in a cover-up of Iran-Contra, or what you might call obstruction of justice. Then there's Iraq. Gulf War I, the good war, the clean war, the one Saddam Hussein started. Unlike his sons, Iraq war. Bush Sr. was just responding, right?
5: Less than a week ago, in the early morning hours of August 2nd, Iraqi armed forces, without provocation or warning, invaded a peaceful Kuwait.
2: Without provocation or warning... I guess it's not just Bush Jr. who told lies about Iraq to justify U.S. military action. The reality is that the week before Saddam Hussein's illegal and outrageous invasion of Kuwait in August 1990, Bush Sr.'s own ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, told Saddam, a longstanding U.S. ally and client, lest we forget, that we, the United States, we have no opinion on your border disagreement with Kuwait. Talk about a green light for invasion. And then there's the U.S.-led war itself. More than 88,000 tons of U.S. bombs dropped, tens of thousands of Iraqis killed, including more than 400 Iraqi civilians massacred in an air raid shelter in Baghdad after a U.S. airstrike, what Human Rights Watch called a serious violation of the laws of war. But these Iraqi deaths, they don't feature in any of the obits or tributes to Bush in the U.S. media. The New York Times and the Washington Post obits this past weekend both devoted sections to the Gulf War. But neither mentioned the Iraqis killed by Bush or the massacre at the Amaria air raid shelter or the deliberate destruction of Iraqi civilian infrastructure, the power stations, the food processing plants, the flour mills. Neither of them mentioned the cholera and typhoid epidemics that then followed the end of that war or the sanctions that killed more than a million Iraqis. Bush's life matters, apparently, deserves respect. But brown lives don't matter. Nor does the truth, it seems. My guest today is my good friend and Intercept colleague and co-founder of The Intercept, I should add, the Pulitzer Prize-winning Brazil-based author and commentator, Glenn Greenwald, who has written extensively not just on US foreign policy disasters and the failures of the US media to cover them, but also on the way in which we cover the deaths of presidents and politicians more broadly. Glenn... Thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Good to finally have you on the show.
3: I know. I've been a little hurt that it's taken this long, but I'm happy to be here. Hey,
2: uh, the sad passing of George Bush Sr. has brought us together. Before we get into George Bush Sr., George H.W. Bush and his legacy, um, Glenn, deal with the argument, which is a good faith argument from some people, that you and I shouldn't even be having this conversation. It's too soon. It's in bad taste. He just died. He hasn't even been buried yet. What is your response to that line of argument?
3: A couple of points. One is it reminds me a lot of the people who, in the wake of mass shootings, complain when... People, quote unquote, politicize the mass shootings by raising issues, for example, of the need for greater gun control, when obviously the epidemic of mass shootings is an inherently political event, impossible to talk about without political points, because there's political policy decisions that have led to these mass shootings. And so the people who want to suppress... Uh, the real implications of those of events try and censor the discourse by saying the only thing you're allowed to do is express sadness and thoughts and prayers to the victims um, when in fact the entire event is intrinsically political. In the case of people, public figures, um, especially political leaders who die, it's even more of a deceit because not only is it an intrinsically political event, right? The only reason we're all talking about the death of George H. W. Bush was because he was a political leader. Um, It's not like he was friends with each of us individually or our
2: next door neighbor.
3: Exactly. What really bothers me about it is that if the people who were insisting that there be no political criticisms of him were willing to uphold their end of that etiquette bargain by not making any political points of their own, I would still disagree with them, but at least I would have more respect for their position. So in other words, like we can't say anything politically bad about George H.W. Bush until, I don't know, whatever their religious like period of time is that they never say when is the right
2: time to say it in two months time when
3: everyone's moved on. Right. Exactly. It's very arbitrary. It's just, I don't know what the time period is, but they grant themselves license to make extremely political point. Exactly. You know, they're building him into this political icon of nobility and positive political values and a patriot. So they're creating political hagiography making political arguments, exploiting this death to make political points, while at the same time demanding that nobody else make countervailing political points. And that's what I find so bothersome about it, is it's a demand to engage in one-sided
2: propaganda. And the hypocrisy, I think, is, is spot on. What you say, it's so hard to get this point across, though, every time a public figure dies, because it's the same argument, just like after every mass shooting, it's the same argument from the right and the NRA. It is the same argument, whether it's John McCain, uh, whether it's George Bush Sr., whether it's Margaret Thatcher, and you wrote a very... Uh, Good piece about death etiquette back in 2013 for The Guardian, which I urge all the listeners to go read, where Glenn uh, uh, explains in length why we shouldn't be silent at times like this. But, Glenn, well, that's what's so annoying. Even friends of mine, family members, were saying to me, Oh, why'd you write this piece on Saturday about Bush? You know, we love your stuff, but now's not the time. Show some respect for the family. And I'm like, Well, if it was just about the family, then of course. Of course, I want to show respect for the family. But this is not about the family. If it was just, if CNN was saying, breaking news, George Bush Sr. has died. He was the 41st president. He leaves behind eight grandkids 17 great-grandkids, it's a very sad time for the family, I probably wouldn't say anything and I wouldn't have written an article maybe. But if you're going to go on air and say, here's all his former assistants, advisors, cabinet secretaries, and they're telling us that he was a great president and he only did good things then it is incumbent upon us as journalists on you and me and others to say, "Um, I think you're forgetting a few things. And I think it's a key point is this whole discussion, this taboo
3: conflates public and private etiquette. So if I were to go to George H.W. Bush's funeral or his wake and his children were there and his siblings and his relatives and his friends, I wouldn't go and start just out of the blue and vindictively rubbing in their faces criticisms because I would give them space to privately mourn. Yeah. Those are private ceremonies. And I think that they have the right to to mourn, but it's not strictly a private event. It's a very public and political event. The The death of most, most people are not discussed on CNN uh, for days at a time. The reason that it's being discussed is because in addition to being a private person, a father, a brother, a, 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 a all that, he was also, a president who made really yeah. greedy decisions. One, the only one, other, of only, the other...
2: one of only 44 men in history to have served Ex- as president of the United States.
3: Exactly. And the other point is that this is not applied consistently by anybody. If you go, for example, and look at how CNN or how the New York Times or how any major media outlet in the West talked about the death of Hugo Chavez, mm. they would say good point. the good point, you know, he brought people out of poverty. He was popular among the Venezuelan poor. And they would also talk about the bad points. He restricted uh, a free press. He was viewed as having authoritarian tendencies. Yeah. Exactly what should be done, right? Which is that you have an honest discussion of where the person fits in. So why should we exempt American leaders from honest discussions unless we're propagandists and state? TV. So here's
2: my question to you. As much as definitely it is propaganda and state TV and watching CNN on Saturday, especially as a Brit in DC, just watching that, it was was bizarre to see the kind of music and uh, you had Jake Tapper, who's a journalist I respect at CNN, tweeting out cartoons of George and Barbara Bush meeting outside the gates of heaven. It's just bizarre. The whole heaven angle with journalists is weird. Uh, And I'm a believer. I'm not even an atheist like you. I actually believe in God and the afterlife. It's just weird to be having discussions about afterlife in kind of mainstream journalism. That's not really the purview of journalists. But For me, what was interesting was, what is that driven by? Is that propaganda and state TV? I'm sure part of it is. But part of me, maybe as the immigrant here, says, is it a cultural thing about the U.S. media that Americans and American journalists are just more pious, more deferential to people in power than maybe other, even other Western journalists? I don't think you would have this kind of coverage if Angela Merkel died tomorrow on German TV. Maybe I'm wrong.
3: I think I think there is a lot going on, right? So um I mean the the first time I really noticed this was when Ronald Reagan died mm-hmm. and the coverage was beyond suffocating. I mean, it made the coverage of McCain and George H.W. Bush look almost, you know, mean-spirited. It was just, <laughs> a, it, ne- it was never-ending. Um, They followed his casket around all over the country. And Ronald Reagan was a deeply divisive figure, but for at least a week on TV, not a syllable of criticism was permitted. Yeah. So, yes, I think it is that the U.S. media is extremely patriotic. Um, One of the flaws of the U.S. media is because, you know, people like Cable Ho on CNN and MSNBC are extremely rich. They live in the same neighborhoods as the powerful people that they cover. They start identifying them with them. They're part of the same cultural class. Um, They interview them. They get to know their top aides, their kids. Um, It's just a natural human instinct, I think, if you don't try and create some psychological distance to start revering the people that, that you're covering. And I think that's part of the flaw of
2: US journalism. But here's what I'd add to that. The same what you just said applies, I'm sure, to the British press corps too. But to be fair to the British, corps, British press corps, which has many sins, uh, you don't see Downing Street political correspondents standing up when Theresa May or Tony Blair were to come in the room. That would be absurd. The White House press corps stands up when Trump comes into the Rose Room. I've always found that bizarre. And maybe that's partly because of the deference, partly because the president is also your head of state. He's also kind of the Queen of England and the Prime Minister wrapped into one, which is kind of, which adds to that whole sense of grandeur and... uh this idea that the president is the state and, you know, this, as you say, patriotism, this idea that you must mourn for George Bush publicly because it's a patriotic thing to do. And it's not just the media, Glenn. It's not just kind of the centrists or liberals or whatever it is. There's this pressure on progressives and the left to also come out and join the encomiums and the hagiography. Bernie Sanders has been praising Bush in recent days. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, when McCain died, she got criticized for saying, I think she said something like he was an unparalleled uh, example mm. of something or another, which was a weird word to use because unparalleled literally means no one else on earth uh, comes close to them. Right, right. Um, and I just think there's this pressure on the left also to toe this line, and a lot of American left-wing politicians do play the game and go along with it, maybe because they're just worried about being accused of being unpatriotic.
3: Right. Well, I mean, they don't, I mean, politicians by their nature don't want to be the target of the attacks that you were the target of over the last 48 hours because of the things <laughs> that you wrote. Um, I, I also, though, do think that there's a particular Trump angle here that we we shouldn't overlook, which is that part of yes. the opposition, the media opposition, the Democrat opposition, the Democratic opposition to Donald Trump is to kind of whitewash and revise the pre-Trump history in the US. Very good point. To say that kind of all US political presidents used to be, even if you didn't agree with them ideologically, noble, they abided by the rule of law, they were good patriots. Obviously, I think a big part of why McCain was so beloved upon death was because he was a virulent opponent of, of Donald Trump to the point of asking him not to come to his funeral. So this reverence yeah. being heaped on these figures, I think That's has a- a big Trump angle to it as well.
2: So let's talk about the Bush legacy and how different he was from Trump or not. Let's talk about George H.W. Bush. Before we talk about the bad stuff, the overlooked stuff, uh, I just want to make it clear, and I don't know if you disagree with me, he wasn't the worst of presidents. He did some good things. Uh, What do you think he did that he should genuinely be remembered fondly for, which was a net positive at the time?
3: Well, it's interesting because he was a foreign policy expert, you know, a genuine foreign policy expert and brought in to his cabinet, um, unlike the Reagan administration that preceded him, which were these hardcore anti-communism ideologues, a kind of realism that in in a lot of ways was really welcome. And one of the things that I'm not sure if it ever made CNN's air, probably didn't, that Marked the Bush administration was they were probably the most pro Palestinian, or at least willing to criticize Israel administration of the last three or four decades, to the point where they threatened to withhold funds from the Israelis if they didn't stop being so cantankerous on the peace process. Because James Baker, George Bush's secretary of state and close friend knew that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the perception that the U.S. was on the side of Israel was endangering U.S. interests around the world, something that, you know, David Petraeus and others more recently have said. Um, So I think he was experienced, competent. There were moments of decency where he kind of repudiated the uglier parts of political life. And one of the weirdest things is, um, you know, the Reagan administration was filled with all these tough talking guys who like evaded war and yet George H.W. Bush was an actual war hero he was almost killed when his plane was shot down and yet they always called him a wimp even though he displayed Mm -hmm. actual courage whatever you think of. And the
2: other realists around him were people like Brent Scowcroft general, Colin Powell general. Uh, which was interesting as well. I mean, the Israel thing is, is fascinating. I, re- I remember uh, reading that he was the guy who, in the middle of one of these power struggles over loan guarantees for Israel, he called himself, quote, one lonely guy battling against a 1,000 lobbyists on the hill, which drove APAC up the wall. Can you imagine a modern president or senator or congressman saying, I'm one lonely guy against a 1,000 pro-Israel lobbyists? I can't imagine uh, anyone having the guts to say that in the current climate in particular, even now. Um, he also stood up to the gun lobby, which I think was... Uh, yeah. Yep, worth yep, mentioning, the yep. NRA. Um, and, uh, you know, the Cold War ended on his watch without a shot, which, you know, other presidents might have uh, gone to war at that time. So, look, I give him credit for that. As you said earlier, you know, give a you know, say the good things and say the bad things. The problem is right now is that in since Friday night on mainstream television in The New York Times and The Washington Post, there has been no discussion of the bad stuff. So let me ask you, what's the worst thing? you think he did? So I think the worst thing he did, and this is the
3: big irony of the Trump angle, um, is the Iran-Contra scandal was, although most people of, say, the millennial generation and younger never learned about it, don't really know much about it, was a genuinely deep and profound criminal scandal pervading the highest levels of the government in the 1980s. you know, which the,
2: actually cost lives, unlike Gate, as far as we know. People right. actually died yeah. as part
3: of Iran. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, they not only did they Vicious contra sell arms, well, they handed the Iranian government, which at the time was a declared enemy of the U.S., really sophisticated weapons. Um, but then the worst thing they did was they used the proceeds of that money to fund death squads yeah. in Central America. Um, and then they lied about it systematically to the Congress. It was also a violation of congressional law. Congress had explicitly prohibited any money from going to the Contras yeah. because of the human rights violations that. That's why they had that to was a
2: Reagan story, Glenn. It had nothing to do with Bush. It was all Reagan.
3: And, and the thing about it was because <laughs> Bush was the, you know, a former CIA director and really was a truly knowledgeable foreign affairs expert, he was at the center of a lot of that. And when he became president, because of how long special counsel investigations take, the special counsel investigation was going on. He stymied it. Every step of the way. And then when he lost to Bill Clinton in the 1992 election, he used his lame duck status to pardon Casper Weinberger along with six other aides, including Reagan's defense
2: secretary. Who was
3: Reagan's defense secretary. And the special counsel at the time viewed Casper Weinberger as being the key witness whose notes and other documents would implicate. George Bush himself at the center of these crimes. So the pardons that he gave out weren't just, oh, we're protecting our political aides and allies and minions, which is bad enough. What George Herbert Walker Bush did with those pardons is exactly what everyone now says correctly will be an, a grave threat to the rule of law and democracy oh, yeah. if Trump are, People are it. losing
2: their minds now over, over him just suggesting he might pardon Paul Manafort. Bush actually went and pardoned the six main guys, Elliot Abrams, Casper Weinberger, and others. Let Let me just read out to our listeners what Lawrence Walsh, the special counsel at that time, said in his final report in August 1993. He said the criminal investigation of Bush was regrettably incomplete. He said the Weinberger pardon marked the first time a president ever pardoned someone in whose trial he might have been called as a witness because the president was knowledgeable of factual events underlying the case. He accused Bush of participating in the Iran-Contra cover-up. So, yes, I just I tweeted this uh, earlier this week, which is, you cannot get mad and angry at Trump for obstructing justice, for promising a pardon to Manafort, for refusing to do an interview with Mueller, and then give George H.W. Bush a pass when he did all of that and worse with his special counsel.
3: Exactly. And Trump might, at the end of the day, equal that. Um, maybe he might even exceed it, but as of now, he hasn't. And yeah. so, to act as though Trump is this unparalleled and unprecedented the threat to the rule of law while we heap praise on George Herbert Walker Bush, even though he did exactly what everyone says, if Trump does, democracy will die from having done, um, is, I think, really disturbing.
2: So... That was a special counsel angle, which was a deeply, uh, a deeply undercovered angle, even at the time. And now, definitely now, very few people are aware of it. I mean, I've had people reaching out to me since I wrote this column, journalists, analysts saying, I never knew any of that stuff. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't know that much about it until I started delving into uh, the Bush presidency. But there's other things. I mean, I don't want to go through everything I went through in my article. If you do plug, self-plug to the listeners, if you do want to read my piece uh, that I wrote, it's on the Intercept website where I talk about Iraq. I talk about uh, Willie Horton ads. I talk about the special counsel, which Glenn raise. But let me talk about a couple other things that haven't really made it into the news and I didn't have space for in the piece. Um, George Bush senior, since we're on the subject of Trump, in 1988, the US Navy during the iran Iraq War shot down Iran Air Flight 655, killing 290 people on board, including 66 kids. And not only was the the crew never disciplined, not only was the captain later given a medal Uh, by George Bush, Sr. Uh, This is what Bush said when he was asked to apologize for the killing of those Iranian civilians.
5: I'll never apologize for the United States of America. Ever. I don't care what the facts are.
2: Glenn, if Donald Trump had said something like that, what do you think the reaction in the D.C. pundit community would be? I mean, it really is one of the most
3: horrific and sociopathic statements made by a president probably in the 20th century. And I mean, obviously the bar for that is really high, so I don't want to put it in the necessarily the top <laughs> class, but I mean, it's really to this day, it's it's shocking to hear given that whatever the intentions were, and there's a lot of debate over how reckless that was, whether it was even intentional, whether they mistook it for a military aircraft, you know, Dozens and dozens of children and hundreds of civilians. It's just Basic compassion.
2: We're talking about compassion right now. Where was this compassion? In? Not.
3: I mean, right. Even if it was a complete. Like, even you know, if you get in your car. And you, you know, injure somebody through no fault of your own, um, other than negligence, even though you don't intend to hurt them. You apologize. That's, that's a decent yeah. thing to do, right? I will never apologize for the United States when there's hundreds of innocent no matter dead what the around, facts are. That's no my favorite Kellyanne Conway line. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. And you know, I think that that was very. And this is, I think, what you know, Mehdi has been most disturbing to me is that he very much came out of this era in which all kinds of grave evils were committed by the United States during the Cold War against their enemies based on the belief that America was so inherently good that anything that it did was justified. And that mentality was expressed in that quote that you read under the most horrific of circumstances. So, you know, people will say, look, if you're the head of an imperial nation, you're necessarily going to engage in terrible acts. You're going to end up killing innocent people. You're going to be using violent force under very dubious conditions. Fine. That's exactly the reason why U.S. leaders ought to be treated like morally complex figures when they die and not embodiments of goodness, benevolence and nobility as the US media has demanded
2: be done over the last
3: year or over the last week.
2: In defiance of the evidence. So one thing that jumps out to me, what's really weird is, is this is not none of this stuff. Some of this stuff is ancient history in a a way. I get it. The Iran-Contra stuff, if you weren't alive at the time, if you haven't studied US history, fine, it might fly past you even as a journalist. But some of the stuff is so fresh. For example, the Willie Horton ad It's not as if that ad has come out of nowhere. We were just talking about it a few weeks ago when Trump ran his caravan ad, when the the Republicans ran that caravan ad Everyone, including on CNN, was saying this is the most racist ad since Willie Horton. So it's not as if, you know, the George Bush stuff is is all ancient history. A lot of it is re- very relevant to now. I'll give you another example that, that jumped out to me, Glenn, after I'd written my piece on Saturday. I spotted uh, someone pointing out. So if you go to George Bush Senior's Twitter account uh, on Twitter, if you go to at uh, George H.W. Bush, the last tweet posted on there by the late 41st president is October the 5th. It's a tweet to Senator Susan Collins of Maine, and it says, at Senator Collins, political courage and class, I salute my wonderful friend and her principal leadership. And you know what he's referring to, though. It was the Brett, it praising, was the Brett
3: Kavanaugh vote. Exactly. Yeah. He's
2: praising Susan Collins for vote. And Susan Collins was a friend of the Bush family, and the Bushes were friends with Kavanaugh. We know that. We know George Bush Jr. was manning the phones trying to get votes for Justice Kavanaugh. George Bush Sr. saying to Susan Collins, great job on getting Kavanaugh on Supreme Court. Now, last time I checked, I thought Justice Kavanaugh was the most divisive issue in American politics today. You know, he's getting a pass on that. You no know, mention of that in any of his obituaries.
3: I mean, Matty, when I, you know, I started writing about politics in 2005, um, motivated in large part by what was my personal disgust and the growing national disgust over what the administration of George Bush 43 and Dick Cheney were doing in the name of the war on terror to civil liberties, to innocent lives around the world, to American democracy and to the rule of law. And in every moment, of all of that, when people were calling Bush and Cheney fascists, when they were saying that they were murderers, when they were saying that Halliburton was um, co-opting U.S. foreign policy for profit, kleptocracy, all of the things that are being said about Trump, George Bush was defending his son. Now, you can say, well, look, I mean, you shouldn't hold that against George Bush Sr., but I don't think that that's the point. The point is, is that the Republican Party prior to Trump shared the vast majority of sins that are now currently... Attributed to Donald well, Trump, well, you can find some new ones, but he comes out of that lineage. Well, of which sort of I've two.
2: I've I have, I have two, two words. Clarence Thomas. <laughs> right Why is his name not been in the news recently? George Bush Senior put Clarence Thomas, one of the worst Supreme Court justices in history, a man credibly accused of sexual harassment, onto the Supreme Court knowingly, deliberately. He doubled down when the accusations against Thomas came out. And I just find it bizarre that the same Democrats who are telling us what a great moderate president he was are the same Democrats who rail against Clarence Thomas every week. It's just, the cognitive dissonance is amazing.
3: It, it's really, this This is why, many I'm so glad you wrote your piece. It's why I'm going to continue to defend the right to have these discussions at exactly the time that they're most needed, which is when the propaganda and hagiography are being constructed. What really is being demanded is that we all submit to historical revisionism, that a false narrative about history and politics be permitted to be erected yeah. without challenge or dissent. And uh, the fact that journalists, of all people are leading the way in making that demand is deeply corrupt and offensive and I just think that it's incumbent upon all of us to
2: refuse to allow them to do that yeah and there's a guy called Brendan Nyhan, I think he pronounces his name, from Dartmouth, academic, on Twitter, very lively, writes some interesting stuff. He has this Twitter thread going, since Trump came to power, whenever Trump does one of his absurd, unconstitutional, outrageous, illegal things, he tweets, what would you say if you saw this happening in another country? Which I always find interesting, I always retweet because it's a good point. You really can understand the Trumpism when you look at other countries, and and yet... I just think of I just think of that tweet for the last couple of days, and I'm thinking, what would you say if you saw this in another country? If you saw the, the president of a tin pot dictatorship, quote unquote, in Africa or Asia, die, and the and the state media saying, well, he might be in heaven. He was one of the great human beings. He was a nice guy. He never did anything nasty. Uh, we would be laughing. We would say, oh, that's a country with no free press. Oh, poor poor old souls, you know, being forced to say all that stuff. And yet, that's what the US is doing now. I mean, he's yeah,
3: go ahead. I, well, I mean, I would pity. The people I watched on TV having to do that, right? You would feel like yeah. almost like and these people sorry are doing it voluntarily. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here is well, here is exactly.
2: So let me ask. So let me ask you this before we wrap up: Henry Kissinger, Henry Kissinger is going to die soon. He's a very old man, and when he dies, many do you, you promise Kissinger will be? Pr- first of
3: all, do you promise that's going to happen?
2: Well, I mean, I can't control these things, but I think human biology will kick in at some stage. Right. Okay. What will happen? when he goes from the scene? What's going to be? He dies on a Friday night like George Bush Sr. What is the CNN headline on Saturday morning?
3: Oh, I absolutely think, like, foreign policy guru or, um, really? you know... Really? For- Even
2: Kissinger? Do you think, Do you not think we'll get a little bit of I think some of the no, shit he did? No,
3: no. I think the... I, really? Actually, I, I actually Ooh, think... The, I hope you're wrong. I, I, no, I'm not wrong. I think that the... I mean, look at how Kissinger is treated now by, you know, mainstream media outlets. I think... That's true. Hillary think, Clinton's think, his think, friend. I think the bigger test is going to be when Jimmy Carter dies um, because okay. he spent the last you know two decades of his life being very critical of Israel, being an outspoken critic of the United States and its hegemony. That's a good point. That, I think, point. is the
2: more interesting question. I well, think I think it's a double and... whammy with Jim, Jimmy Carter because it's not just, okay, he's, he's he's moved to the left and people don't like the left. I also think, one thing we haven't, we run out of time, and one thing we didn't cover was a lot of this hagiography is always very one-sided. It's Democrats being ordered by Republicans to learn. Them. I don't believe for a second that you would have the same hagiography from the Republicans, uh, if Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton dropped dead tomorrow, Definitely they wouldn't not. be kind of or, as oh, deferential. Or Bill Clinton.
3: Nor Bill Clinton. Or Absolutely, Bill not. No, Absolutely not. Absolutely
2: not. Fox News would not be sitting there saying, what a great man Bill Clinton was. It's the left that always kind of kowtows to the right when they're on these things. Uh, so on that note, last question, then linked to Kissinger. Donald Trump, I think, will be an interesting test case. If those burgers ever get to him and uh, and he drops dead, what will be, uh, what will be the reaction? All these people who say we must respect the dead—he's the president. I, f- I suspect they won't follow their own rules on Trump. They
3: or or imagine if Putin died tomorrow? Absolutely, they won't. Um, and you know, nor should they. They should not suddenly pretend when Donald Trump dies tomorrow that a person who actually is without any positive redeeming traits was in fact a really kind and good and yeah, compassionate person true. just because he no
2: longer lives. Well, to be fair, I guess when you cover Trump, it's going to be tougher. With Bush seniors, as we've discussed, there were some redeeming traits as a, as a family man and as a president. With Donald Trump, not even as a family man. Glenn, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for taking time out to join me.
3: Thank you for finally having me on, Matty. I really appreciate
2: it. That was Glenn Greenwald, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, co-founder of The Intercept, speaking to me from Brazil. I think Glenn's absolutely right. There's masses of hypocrisy.
0: And welcome back to the Weekly Review. Uh, I played a different podcast than I was intending to. It happens sometimes. There's a longer one, which I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, First of all, I wanted to just share another news story that came out recently. Four cops charged for savagely beating one of their own officers who was undercover during protests. The article is from the Free Thought Project. Police violence during the Jason Stockley protest was so over the top that four cops have been charged with beating one of their own officers. This is written by uh, Matt um, Agorist and it came out on December 7th. And again, this is from the com. The article contains... Some photos. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri. In December 2011, St. Louis police officer Jason Stockley violated department policy when he grabbed his personal AK-47, premeditated, and then murdered Anthony Lamar Smith. The planning of the murder and the actual murder were captured on the officer's dash cam. In spite of the overwhelming amount of evidence against him, a St. Louis judge last year found Stockley not guilty of first-degree murder in the 2011 shooting death of Smith. Months of protests ensued immediately. Once they put those barricades up, I knew what was up, activist Jay Shepard recalled to Rolling Stone. They put those up when we were waiting for the indictment or non-indictment of Darren Wilson when Mike Brown was killed. It was just like this building up of anticipation and anxiety. During the protests, angry citizens took to the streets en masse. They were met by hundreds of police officers in riot gear who were armed with military-grade weaponry and technology. During the protests, story after story surfaced of officers using unnecessary force, beating protesters and making false arrests. This was in spite of the fact that the protests ran relatively smoothly and were far less violent than the ones in 2014 in Ferguson after the killing of Mike Brown. Despite the peaceful nature of the protest, police officers were seen on video carrying out extremely disturbing acts. One such act involved trampling an elderly woman. Another act involved police chanting, whose streets are streets, as they surrounded protesters, otherwise known as kettling, and began a brutal assault with pepper spray and police batons. Police violence had gotten so bad, in fact, that four officers were actually arrested and charged with civil rights violations. Officers Dustin Boone, Bailey, Coletta, Randy Hayes, and Christopher Myers face federal charges of civil rights violation, obstruction of justice, and lying to federal investigators. These four cops are accused of savagely beating a demonstrator during the protests and then covering it up but this was no ordinary demonstrator. During the protests, undercover police officers were placed throughout the crowd in order to catch people who were attempting to instigate violence or destroy property. Police violence was so over-the-top that these four officers allegedly grabbed one of their own, a 22-year veteran of the department who was working undercover. The officers are accused of attacking their fellow officer without reason, throwing him to the ground and savagely beating him, causing serious bodily injury. As the St. Louis Business Journal reports, Count one of the indictment specifically alleges that Boone, Hayes, and Myers violated the undercover officer's constitutional rights when they used unreasonable force on him. Their actions resulted in bodily injury and included the use of a dangerous weapon. The indictment also alleges that they threw the undercover officer to the ground and kicked him while he was compliant and not posing a physical threat to anyone. Count two charges... Uh, Boone Hayes and Myers with conspiracy to obstruct justice for conspiring and agreeing to engage in misleading conduct toward witnesses to prevent information about their criminal conduct from reaching federal authorities. And they have much, there's much more information here in this article if they check it out again, it seems like, why is it that cops only uh, get charged with assaulting protesters when it's one of their own who's undercover? Ugh. Okay, moving along, I would like to get to the uh, the original podcast I was planning on playing. This one was informative, though, so um, I suppose sometimes they say there's no such thing as a mistake, or I don't know. I don't know what th- what that's about exactly. Um, here we go this is the longer one it's an hour and a half obviously we're not going to get to it I guess we could. I could just stay here for a few hours what am I doing really uh, George H.W. Bush 1924-2018 American War Criminal that's the one I was intending to play it's also uh, the Intercepted podcast we'll start this going we'll see how much we can play of it um, super informative uh, so thanks for listening in
7: Dude, you? what's that all about that's a tranquilizer gun hey hey be careful with that That's the most powerful Trank gun on the market. Cool. Cool. Yeah, it is cool. They say it could puncture the skin of a rhino from a... Yes! That's awesome! What? What? You just took one in the
4: jugular, man! Whoa. Yes! (laughs) Oh my god. Oh my god. Look at this. Oh my god. You should pull that out. That shit is not cool. Wait. Wait.
7: Pull out. What? The dart, man. Got a fucking dart in your neck. You are crazy. I like you. I feel tired. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Mr. President? I've come to talk with you again. Be best. Because illusion softly. Be best. Left it seems Be back. Be back. And the vision that was planted in my brain. Be back. Within the sound of silence.
8: This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 76 of Intercepted.
2: As the sun set over Washington Monday, President Bush's coffin arrived at the Capitol, a hero's welcome heralded by cannons, and a 21-gun salute.
8: The national religion of the United States is American exceptionalism. And we are now in the midst of a grotesque canonization of one of its imperial saints, George Herbert Walker Bush. And right now, at this moment, every media outlet in this country Every politician, Democrat and Republican, is engaged in collective eulogy based on lies. Lies about who Bush was, lies about his policies, lies about the mass killing he oversaw during his life at the highest levels of power in the U.S. government. George Herbert Walker Bush was an unrepentant war criminal who spent the overwhelming majority of his life making the world a worse place a more dangerous place, and he leaves behind a global trail of tears, of bloodshed, of death and destruction. His legacy can be seen in the poverty and corruption of Central and Latin America. It can be seen in the never-ending killing fields of Iraq. It can be seen in the international criminals that he pardoned after Iran-Contra and the systematic violence of the so-called war on drugs. This legacy can be seen in the scourge of AIDS, the presence of a sexual harasser, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, who in a sick irony of history replaced Thurgood Marshall, the first black Supreme Court justice and a noble man. George Herbert Walker Bush came from a powerful family, was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, to a father who cozied up to Nazis, who desecrated the grave of the indigenous leader Geronimo, and whose businesses contributed to the imperial agenda to force the poor of the world into indentured servitude for the powerful. This is the eulogy that George Herbert Walker Bush should be receiving this week. Instead, we have this.
5: Throughout his long life, George Bush was admired as a man of decency, modesty, and uncommon achievement. Values that, to the end, reflected what was most important to him, his family. I just want to get up into heaven and I don't get there by bragging on myself. My mother told me that years ago. George Herbert Walker Bush today is being remembered as a great
8: man and as a gentle soul. The 41st president honored today not just as a statesman, but as a father and neighbor. The Houston Symphony paying tribute to his love of colorful socks. The U.S. and international news media are engaging in sick propaganda. Leave the stories about how classy Bush supposedly was, how cool his marriage was, how he built a father-son relationship with Bill Clinton, how he was nice to Barack Obama, how he always wore those funny socks. Leave all of that to the family in their private memorials. But for the rest of us, the rest of the world, we must remember that his incalculable crimes were committed in public from the highest chambers of power in the most dominant nation in the world. The accounting for his crimes should also be done in public. But no, we're told we have to have respect. We're told that it's not the time to discuss any of this. We're told that we must pretend that he was not a mass murderer with so much blood on his hands. You know what? Donald Trump doesn't even have enough time left in his life to commit even a fraction of the international crimes that Bush carried out during his decades in power, whether it was at the helm of the CIA or as vice president or as president. Not even close. Journalists today believe that they're so brave in calling out Trump's lies, in investigating his real estate deals, in probing his associates, And yet none of them have the spine to accurately describe the well-documented, indisputable crimes committed by George Herbert Walker Bush? What we're witnessing is a powerful media class and an elite political class, whitewashing the life of a man who used his various positions not to make the world better, but to wage unthinkable wars, to undermine democratic movements, to kill innocent people, to orchestrate coups and invasions. And the reason this doesn't happen, that we don't talk about this, is because it's a sacrilege in the religion of American exceptionalism. When an unarmed young black man is shot dead by the police, the media is often flooded with stories about how they were troubled kids, or they had criminal records, or they had used drugs, or they had run-ins with the law. The pictures used in these stories are often ones where these dead black men are presented as thugs or scary, Journalists probed the life of Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Eric Garner. News organizations did everything in their power to smear these people in death with absolutely no regard for their families, no respect for their humanity. If George Herbert Walker Bush was treated the same way as these black men, it would take months of nonstop, 24-7 coverage to even begin to describe the tip of the iceberg of the unforgivable deeds that George Bush committed. Why? Because he committed his crimes as president of the United States and the nature of his crimes was imperial. He did it with bombs and tanks and invasions and coups. In watching the gross hagiography on display this week, I'm reminded of the quote from Voltaire. It is forbidden to kill, therefore all murderers are punished unless they kill in large numbers and to the sound of trumpets. That is who George Herbert Walker Bush was, a man who killed in large numbers to the sound of trumpets. And that's why all of these powerful news organizations, all of these Democrats and Republicans are engaging in willful lies, intentional whitewashing. It's sickening to watch all of this and to remember the countless lives that this man was responsible for ending across the globe. Can you imagine watching a memorial service for a warmonger leader of another nation and if instead of their vast crimes, we were bombarded with stories of their funny socks and their sense of humor and how good of a husband or father they were? The pictures of their service dog next to a casket? For Bush's victims across the world, that's their reality right now. That's their reality this week. The most powerful people in the United States are collectively pretending that none of it happened you want to talk about disrespecting the dead? Let's talk about the more than 400 people that Bush incinerated in a Baghdad bomb shelter in February of 1991. How does this celebration of their murder and Bush's sense of humor and funny socks feel to their families? Bush dropped nearly 90,000 tons of bombs on Iraq, tens of thousands of people were killed in that war and hundreds of thousands of civilians died from its effects. And let us remember the so-called highway of death when Bush authorized the mass slaughter of retreating Iraqi military units, bombing thousands of vehicles and killing untold numbers of soldiers in retreat out of Kuwait. Our mission is to go up and stop the retreating forces as they left Kuwait City. And he said, put some hate in your heart and he'll be waiting here when we get back. When we took off, we'd expected to see convoys leaving Kuwait City, but we weren't prepared for the magnitude, the number of vehicles that were on the ground that we saw when we broke out under the clouds. We all know that George Herbert Walker Bush's son, George W. Bush, lied the U.S. into the invasion and occupation of Iraq. But it was a lesson that he learned from his dad. In the build-up to the 1991 Gulf War, Powerful American public relations firms orchestrated a campaign to convince the world that Iraqi soldiers had gone into Kuwaiti hospitals and killed babies and in incubators and stabbed pregnant women. This campaign, based entirely on fiction, culminated with a bipartisan congressional hearing supposedly on human rights, and it featured a young Kuwaiti girl who fought back tears as she claimed to have been a volunteer at a hospital in Kuwait where she witnessed these atrocities.
1: While I was there, I saw the Iraqi soldiers coming to the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators. took the incubators and left the children to die on the
7: cold floor. It was horrifying.
8: What the American public was not told at the time of this congressional hearing was that this girl was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. The whole thing was orchestrated by these American PR firms. And this girl had witnessed none of these fake crimes. But the lies were repeated over and over as Bush made his case for war. These lies were also promoted by Representative Henry Hyde and other lawmakers on the floor of Congress. Now is the time to check the aggression of this ruthless dictator whose troops have bayoneted pregnant women and have ripped babies from their incubators in Kuwait. President George Herbert Walker Bush used the false incubator story at least six times in public as he pushed for war against Iraq.
5: And they had kids in incubators, and they were thrown out of the incubators so that Kuwait could be systematically dismantled.
8: Both U.S. wars against Iraq were based on lies, and both were run by presidents named Bush. If you speak honestly about who George H.W. Bush really was, then you, by necessity, will be indicting the history, the politics, the legacy of the United States. If you speak honestly about Bush, then the myth of American exceptionalism is laid bare. Today on the show, we're going to be offering a different kind of memorial for George Herbert Walker Bush, an honest one. Later in the show, we're going to be speaking with a renowned Iraqi poet Sinan Antoun who lived through both Saddam Hussein's regime and the 1991 Gulf War launched by Bush that destroyed Iraq's civilian infrastructure and made Saddam's grip on power even tighter. But first, for an in-depth look at the crimes of George H.W. Bush, I'm joined by my friend and independent investigative journalist, Arun Gupta. His work has appeared in The Intercept, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and other publications. He was a longtime editor at the former Guardian Weekly, and he's one of the founders of the independent newspaper in New York City. Arun Gupta, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Just start by giving a counter-brief
6: eulogy for George H.W. Bush. I think the best way to describe George Herbert Walker Bush is that he was a ruthless master of international diplomacy, and he created the world that uh, gave us uh, Donald Trump. He was one of the primary architects of it. And if you really dig into his history and career, the amount of corruption, criminality, dirty dealings, covert operations, consorting with death squads, dictatorships, drug dealers, puts Donald Trump to shame. And in fact, the Bush family is a criminal enterprise. You know, that's the way they should really be understood. We forget this because we obsess over one Trump tweet to the next. And that's not to say Donald Trump isn't a danger or there isn't all sorts of evidence piling up on criminality on his end. But I think in some ways Bush was a greater danger because he was so good at using the levers of power around Iran-Contra, around Panama, around the Iraq war, that he created kind of this international mess that Trump in part exploited in his rise to power. We
5: have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations, a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations.
8: Arun, of course, the tale of George H.W. Bush that's often told is that he enlisted in the Navy. He was the youngest fighter pilot ever in the Navy.
4: The story of George Bush is a success story. He was both an outstanding college athlete and a brilliant student. He served his country with valor. A combat carrier pilot, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross and three air medals. Today, he serves his industry, his community, and his party.
8: And he sort of made it on his own you know, in politics, running for Congress and then becoming UN ambassador and CIA director, vice president, and ultimately president. But let's back up and talk about what is actually a political dynasty in the United States, the Bush family and Prescott Bush. Give some context to who George Herbert Walker Bush's father Prescott
6: was and a little bit about the family. Both sides of the family. So it's George Herbert Walker. You know, his his wife, Dorothy Walker, came from wealth, whereas Prescott Bush also uh, came from wealth. This is a family whose income starts to become vast in the late 19th century. It's through steel and coal. They were hooked up with standard oil. Then by the time you get to the early 20th century, uh, Prescott Bush had become a financier. So there's nothing self-made about George uh, Bush Sr., just like there's nothing self made about Donald Trump. He's constantly trading off his family connections and wealth. And one of the really interesting parts, and uh, listeners can find this in uh, a couple of great books like American Dynasty by Kevin Phillips or Family of Secrets by Russ Baker, is it looks like Bush Sr., by the late 1950s, had hooked up uh, with the CIA. And This is the real story, that he is someone who is in the spook business. And this comes up time and again. And it really reaches its fruition in the 1980s, where he is part of this whole vast secret government that's being run out of the Reagan administration and engaging in just all these heinous policies that are completely being kept from the public and are violating all sorts of U.S. laws. So his public image is very different from uh, the reality of his political career.
8: And we're going to get to those dirty wars of the 1980s and ultimately the 1991 Gulf War. But before we do that, Arun, Prescott Bush, one of the things that we know about him is that when he was a member of the Skull and Bones Society at Yale, he snuck onto the Beef Creek Apache prisoner of war cemetery in 1918. And he was there to desecrate the grave of the indigenous leader and warrior Geronimo. But also, he was very close to Nazism and the Nazi ideology and
6: figures who would go on to take over Germany under the reign of Adolf Hitler. During uh, the 1930s, uh, his firm was doing a lot of funding for uh, Thyssen, which is this large conglomerate in Germany that's also involved in the steel and coal industry there. And, of course, what is the rearmament program depending on, right? It's depending on all all this uh, metal and steel for building the tanks, uh, building the planes, the ships. We present these pictures of Germany's new army in a ray at Nuremberg, because it's important that the public
4: should have an opportunity of gauging the extent of German rearmament.
5: Yes, Germany rearmed is again a big military factor in the world.
6: And while there was nothing technically illegal, um, at least under U.S. law, of course, Hitler is is secretly arming and in violation uh, to the Armistice uh, Treaty and the League of Nations, he continues this even after the U.S. formally enters World War II into 1942. And finally, the U.S. Treasury seizes some of his assets. And that's worth thinking about, that Prescott Bush is arming the Nazis into 1942, a former Nazi war crime prosecutor said that Prescott Bush should have been prosecuted for aiding and and abetting the enemy. And about a decade ago, two former slave laborers at Auschwitz unsuccessfully tried to sue the Bush family because their slave labor was benefiting, ultimately, uh, the Bush family because they were working for the Tyson Corporation, benefiting uh, from the death camp labor. And then in turn, Prescott Bush did.
8: Now, Arun, you you mentioned George H.W. Bush starting his life in the shadows, working with the CIA in the 1950s. But of course, you know, in all of the eulogies, it's mentioned that he was a former CIA director, but he was only director of the Central Intelligence Agency for less than a year over the course of 1976 to 1977. Take us back to the beginning of the relationship between George H.W. Bush and
6: the CIA and what we know about it. So George Bush uh, joined Skull and Bone Society. This is considered a fertile recruitment ground, these secret societies for the CIA. You know, it's a club, quote unquote, at Yale. At that point, going to an Ivy League institution like that, it's these exclusively young, wealthy white men. Uh, There were quotas on Jews at this time. And of course, virtually no blacks, Latinos or or people of uh, other races. So in the 1950s, out of college, the Bush family was actually uh, very close to the Dulles uh, family. And Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles are really key architects of the Cold War under Dwight D. Eisenhower. Alan Dulles is at the head of the CIA.
4: There are times uh, when the United States government feels that the developments in another government is of a nature to imperil the safety and the security and the peace of the world, and ask the Central Intelligence Agency to be its agent in that particular situation.
6: So George Bush Sr. ends up going into the oil business. Uh, He starts this company called uh, the Zapata Corporation.
5: After college, I returned to Odessa and Midland, where in the framework of the free enterprise system, I helped to build two strong businesses in the oil industry.
6: In the late 1950s, uh, they moved one of their oil rigs close to Cuba. This is around the time that Castro came to power, evicting uh, the U.S.-backed dictator Batista. And the CIA reportedly, what they were doing was they were using the Zapata Offshore Oil Corporation to train Cuban exiles, and that they would give these list of names uh, to uh, George Bush to hire, to work on the platform. And from this platform, they would train them and they would conduct raids on their homeland. But he's traveling all over the world. He's going to South America. He's going to visiting Gulf states. He's going to Borneo. These are all oil producing regions. But what he's also doing is making a lot of future contacts uh, that would uh, come into play in terms of this kind of whole worldwide cloak and uh, dagger. Network.
8: Now, the, all of this that you're describing was before he officially became CIA director or he had even become a member of Congress. And just so people know, he ran for Congress. He won his seat in Houston. He then tried to
5: run for Senate. George Bush, his home is Houston, Texas. He's a Republican candidate for the United States Senate. He will need your votes on May 2nd in order to win the Republican primary. And he will need them again in November if he is to win the Senate seat, now held by a liberal Democrat, Ralph Yarborough.
8: But he was defeated by Lloyd Benson, and then Nixon pulled him back into official Washington. He was U.S. ambassador to the U.N. and then uh, an envoy to China and ultimately becomes CIA chief from 1976 to
5: 1977. I'm going to approach this job with pride, and they can have all the jokes they want on television about the CIA. It's vital to the national security of the United States.
8: Talk about what was going on and what we know about his role as the CIA chief during this period. The Vietnam War had just officially ended, but the dirty wars in Central America were starting to heat
6: up. So actually, first, uh, Bush Sr. ran for Senate in 1964 and lost. And then two years later, he runs for uh, Congress and wins. Within a year of him assuming office, he goes to Vietnam for a three-week trip, and he's accompanied by a senior-level CIA official. And what's interesting about this trip in December 67, January 1968, this is a time that the Phoenix program is being set up. And in fact, there are notes from George Bush Sr. at this time where he talks about his interest in examining the Phoenix program in Vietnam during this period. So the Phoenix program is really just one of the most heinous aspects of what the CIA did in the post-World War II period. It's essentially a death squad program that they conducted in Vietnam. The
5: Phoenix program was created by the CIA, and its purpose was to kill and terrorize. In Vietnam, I was forced to do business with a police chief who was a sadistic uh, mutilator of prisoners. He liked to carve them up and throw the remains in the river, and he was completely paid and propped up by the CIA. His whole career depended on, one, controlling that operation so that the CIA needed him, and two, uh, the CIA propping him up and funding him.
6: The idea was that they were going to do these counterterrorism operations, fight terror with terror is in essence uh, what it was, that they wanted to break the back of the National Liberation Front, the Viet Cong in South Vietnam, by identifying Viet Cong fighters and collaborators, kidnapping them, extracting information and disposing of them. And what that really meant is that they would abduct people, they would torture them in all sorts of brutal ways, and then they would execute them. And low estimates, 25,000 were killed, other estimates are more than 50,000. Very few of them had anything to do with the resistance against the US war. But what's crucial about this period is there are a number of figures in Vietnam, who we don't know if Bush met them at this point, who end up resurfacing at the CIA in 1976, where he becomes close to them. And then these same figures are absolutely central to the secret government running the Iran-Contra operation during the 1980s.
8: Prior to the 1980s, while uh, George H.W. Bush was the director of the CIA, he was also involved in a program that became known as Operation Condor. Talk about that program and what it was and Bush's role.
6: Operation Condor was essentially transnational terrorism network that involved all these right wing military dictatorships set up in Latin America, often with the help of direct intervention in U.S. and countries like Argentina, Chile, and the various intelligence services decided that they wanted to go after dissidents who had fled the country. So the U.S. really plays a central role in this. They're they're training uh, these intelligence directors. They're funding them. They're giving them access to the most sophisticated U.S. communications networks. And these governments, their secret police, end up kidnapping and doing kind of the same thing as they did in Vietnam. They're kidnapping people, they're torturing them, and they're disappearing them, often in in just the most brutal and appalling ways. This really surfaces during uh, George Bush's tenure, because in October of 1976, a CIA asset with the Chilean secret police basically plots and carries out the remote control car bombing of a Chilean diplomat, Orlando Letelier, and his American aide, Ronnie Moffat, in the heart of Washington, D.C. The
4: assassination of Orlando and the other Chilean exiles points directly to the responsibility of the Chilean military government. The Chilean Gestapo has participated in the murder of thousands of innocent persons tortured thousands more, and kept tens of thousands of political prisoners. Now these same fruits have been visited on the city of Washington, D.C.
6: And you got to understand just how crazy this is, that this is essentially the Jamal uh, Koshukji of its day, right? That you're... Engaged in this very flagrant and visible assassination in the heart of the US Capitol. And what does George Bush do? He's director of CIA. He actually deliberately misleads the FBI as to who was behind this bombing. And this is something that happens again and again during the 1980s. And this is very relevant to what's going on with Trump that Bush is actually engaged in deceiving not just the public, but the law enforcement agencies who are tasked with bringing these people to justice. He's protecting the CIA assets um, within Chile and allowing them to carry out these deadly operations on U.S. soil and then preventing them from being brought to justice. And of course, George H.W. Bush's tenure as CIA chief, again,
8: less than a year, ends as Jimmy Carter becomes president. But then Bush, after making his own run at the presidency, ultimately ends up being the running mate for Ronald Reagan on the Republican ticket that ultimately would defeat Jimmy Carter. And of course, it's seldom talked about today, but it's so crucial to remember this history. Remind people of what happened on the eve of Ronald Reagan's election regarding Iran, the American hostages being held in the embassy,
6: and Jimmy Carter. There's a lot of suspicion that uh, there's this October surprise that goes on in 1980. In 1979, Iran is in complete turmoil. The
5: streets of Tehran today, as many as two million people in one of the largest outpourings of anti-American sentiment ever seen.
6: The seizure of the 52 members at the U.S. Embassy in 1979, this happens after Carter decides to let the Shah into the U.S. for cancer treatment, and apparently it was under pressure from Henry Kissinger. They weren't going to let him in otherwise. There's long been suspicion that there was some sort of secret meeting with Bush involved where he struck a deal with the Iranians to release the hostages because the very moment that Ronald Reagan is inaugurated in January of 1981, a plane takes off with all the hostages from Tehran.
5: Now, day one day one of Ronald Reagan's presidency, and day one of freedom for 52 Americans. Though thousands of miles apart, these two historic events moved almost on parallel tracks today. The new president had not been in office an hour when the former hostages became free men and women again.
6: The timing was incredibly suspicious. It has never been able to be definitively confirmed that Bush was involved in in what's called this October surprise because there were all sorts of rumors that the hostages were going to be released. And that was one of the big factors why Carter lost, because he was seen as weak and vacillating towards Iran.
8: And this, of course, toward the end of Carter, beginning of Bush, also begins this era of these dirty wars in Central America. I mean, obviously, the United States had had its hands totally dirty in the region, you know, forever, but it really intensifies then after Bush and Reagan take the White House. And Nicaragua was one of the first targets because in 1979, the leftist Sandinistas officially take power. And then the CIA, with the full support and encouragement of the White House, as well as U.S. military special forces, start building up what Ronald Reagan would call freedom fighters, but it was really a right-wing death squad known as the Contras.
6: So in July 1979, the Sandinistas, at a cost of about 50,000 dead, complete a revolution that had been going on for nearly a decade, ousting the Somoza dictatorship, which had uh, been installed by the U.S. in the 1930s. Sandinistas come to power, and there's also a revolution going on in El Salvador and a smaller one going on in Guatemala, which uh, the U.S. had also uh, fomented a coup in 1954, or against Jacoba Arbenz, these policies are all coming to a head by the late 1970s and early 1980s. And so the Reagan administration from the start is really wants to roll back the Sandinista revolution. We start to see this kind of counterattack, the organizing of these death squads. A lot of these individuals who led the death squads were trained at the School of Americas, which is essentially a Pentagon terrorist training center in the United States, where thousands of Latin American military officers uh, would be trained in the techniques of torture torture, and murder over decades. The U.S. Army School of the Americas, for a long time, it was based in Fort Benning,
8: Georgia, and among the quote-unquote graduates of the School of the Americas were and during this time when Bush was in power, the people who assassinated Archbishop Oscar Romero, who has now been canonized and, and is a saint, uh, shooting him as he said mass in San Salvador, murdered six Jesuit priests and two women who worked with them, raped and murdered four Catholic nuns, and killed tens of thousands of ordinary people disappeared them, threw them out of helicopters. Just to put in clear perspective, the kinds of people that were being trained
6: by the United States during this era at the U.S. Army School of the Americas. Reagan and the Reagan administration were hell-bent trying to oust the Sandinistas from power and to protect and support all these right-wing military dictatorships in Latin America. Like, even before Reagan came to power, he wrote this column in the late 1970s defending the Argentinian generals who uh, murdered, I believe, over 10,000 of their own citizens, that they were bringing order and economic development to Argentina. Personnel from the Argentinian Dirty War were recruited as some of the first trainers from the Contras. Now, when we get to the scandal known as Iran Contra, and here's what a lot of people don't know the independent counsel at the time, a Republican, Lawrence Walsh, is only looking from 1984 onward. There's this whole period from 1982 to 1984 that Iran Contra never investigates because Iran-Contra was only... Charged starting with the violation of what's known as the Boland Amendment. This is an amendment that Congress passes in 1984 that makes it illegal for the CIA, the Pentagon, or any intelligence agency in the U.S. government to provide any direct or indirect or coordinate any aid to the Contras to oppose the Sandinistas. But starting in 1982, the CIA chief, who's kind of legendary, William Casey, Works with Bush to coordinate a program to ship weapons to the Contras. And the key person who's carrying this out is Bush's national security advisor, Donald Gregg, who comes from the Phoenix program, who worked with Bush at the CIA in 1976. And Donald Gregg was actually a 31 year veteran of the CIA. And to be able to To be Bush's national security advisor, he had to resign from the CIA. So this is just a a cover operation. He goes from the CIA to Bush's office to carry out this secret war. And there's just a huge amount of evidence that would actually come out about how this whole secret war and secret government is being run out of uh, George Bush's office. And this is also where we start to see Manuel Noriega. He becomes the strongman in Panama by the late 1970s. 70s. He met George Bush when he was at the CIA in 1976. And Noriega is involved in letting the CIA use Panama to land the weapons in their airfields and then use Panamanian companies to cover all the transactions. And the thing about Iran-Contra is it just starts to get so insanely crazy. I mean, just what an absurd enterprise this is, because Noriega starts to use the cargo flight to ship cocaine into the U.S. because he's working uh, with the Medellin cartel. And the CIA was aware of all this, and and they were turning a blind eye to it. And Bush's office was aware of it as well, because they were so obsessed with trying to oust the Sandinistas and their general anti-communist crusade. And, you know, by 1992, after Bush loses re-election to Bill Clinton, on Christmas Eve, Eve, a few weeks before he leaves office.
4: President Bush issued a written statement this Christmas Eve pardoning former Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger and five others for their involvement in the Iran-Contra scandal. I want to express to the president uh, my deep appreciation for his principal decision in granting this pardon and thereby correcting a terrible
6: injustice that was being perpetrated on me. But if George one... Bush Sr. pardons his defense secretary, Casper Weinberger, who is set to go on trial, and Lawrence Walsh was going to call George Bush as a witness in that trial. And Walsh was closing in on Bush and was looking to criminally prosecute him. There was this whole weapons for hostage deal that was going on in the mid 1980s as well. And some of those proceeds would end up. Being used to fund the Contras. That was being coordinated by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Lawrence Walsh makes clear that it looks like this is a criminal action, that it violates U.S. government policy, but also the Arms Control Export Act. And he said that this went to the very top. He implicates Ronald Reagan by name, Bush, Schultz, Casey, Weinberger, the National Security Advisor, basically the, the whole cabinet. And they should have all been impeached. Mr.
0: And welcome back to the Weekly Review. Currently playing a podcast from The Intercept George H.W. Bush, 1924 to 2018, American War Criminal. We're about halfway through.